I have to tell you that um, it's not often, I don't think, or always, that I feel the need to apologize before I begin the sermon. And this morning is one of those mornings. Um, I'm sorry that I have to preach this message. I'm sorry that our nation turned its back on the unborn about 44 years ago. And that some 50 million babies have been aborted. I'm also realized in the early service this morning that I, I think I owe an apology and that I'm sorry that I can actually preach this message without breaking down and weeping. And I have to say, what's wrong with me? Um, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It is a time when we acknowledge our need for a biblical understanding of the sanctity of human life. What a shame that our nation has allowed this. What a shame that our people have elected officials who would enact legislation to make it illegal for states to outlaw abortion. The matter of the sanctity of life has many tentacles and many fronts. This morning I do want to focus particularly on abortion as we have approached it in a variety of ways through the years. I do think it is important that the church speak to this end. Sometimes I think all I do is speak about it and I'm convicted of that. So perhaps I owe an apology for my lack of action at times. I was thinking about my dad's era. My dad was a pastor and I think he preached many, many years before 1973. I doubt that he ever preached a sermon on the sanctity of human life. There was no need in our culture at that time. But didn't we have other cultural issues? I'm thinking of the civil rights movement and racism and the horror of turning dogs loose on our citizens and knocking them down with fire hoses. And just the whole distorted reality in which we lived. I hope my dad preached against that. I don't remember. I hope our young people grow up knowing that we have addressed these issues directly from the pulpit and directly from the Word of God as well. Although this morning, it is in a sense less a message and more a talk. I don't like the common vernacular of the day where pastors call their sermons talks. Um, may it be known that I don't talk from the pulpit. At least I don't think I talk from the pulpit. I think I preach God's word. But today is sort of a talk. You might think of it as a, a long introduction and a briefer biblical conclusion. That being said, I trust it will be very helpful because I feel that it is important for us as a church, and I don't know all who are here, and I don't know your position or standing on some of these issues or matters, but I think that it is important for our young people and for those who would stand for life and the sanctity of human life, the pro-life movement, though we are often marginalized 
And though it may feel like we do not have a majority view, part of my goal this morning is for us to recognize that there is a huge body of logic that screams pro-life. Even if you might find yourself sitting in the chair this morning as an atheist. And I would like to build then through that logic on just a few points. Seven to be exact, Sobolski. <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> I, I also found in my preparation this morning sort of a, a surreal... Um, inability to wrap my mind around the realities of what are all involved in the abortion movement specifically. As I said, there are other tentacles and other fronts to be addressed in the, in the matter of, of life and the sanctity of human life. We have young people slaughtering themselves in our inner cities. That's a matter of the sanctity of human life. We have the matter of euthanasia and the care of the elderly and the assistance of dying. That's a matter of the sanctity of human life. Um, at a certain level, racism continues to be a matter of the sanctity of human life. We'll address it from a certain angle even this morning in our outline. But I, I found it just stunning to recognize how culture and society can can accept at certain levels the reality of the abortion movement and get to a place where they can call it a good thing. My case in point, as we continue our introduction here, is an article from the Washington Post that is from just last fall. It's September 27, 2016, where the Washington Post uh, ran an article. The one I have is from the Washington Post. Um, and it is entitled, D.C.'s, Washington, D.C.'s only Planned Parenthood facility is open and ready to see patients. It described a little bit about the, uh, uh, the facility that they built. It was a $20 million project, uh, some 27,000 square foot facility uh, within uh, the Washington, D.C. boundaries and uh, metropolitan Washington. It is going to be the headquarters of Planned Parenthood as well as uh, what they call a health clinic. But what was so interesting to me was to read a parallel article that had the subtitle, Religious Leaders Bless Opening of New Planned Parenthood Abortion Clinic and Call It Sacred Work. And I just thought, how, how do we... How do we do this? But then I was reminded that it's as old as the book of Genesis, isn't it? To call evil good and good evil. Let me share just a little bit because I found it very interesting uh, by way of just preparing direction and laying a foundation for our thoughts today. I'm going to jump in on this article about this opening of the Planned Parenthood building, they actually had a dedication and they had a ceremony of dedication. And that's what I'm going to jump into. Uh, there was a Dr. Laura Myers, who's the president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood of Metropolitan Washington. And she told this news outlet that, that this, referring to the building that they were dedicating, confirms the sacredness of the work we do. She said, in almost every message to our staff, I talk about us doing our sacred work. 
Later, she said, pro-lifers, quote, tried to separate those of us working on or supporting the right of women to choose from a sense of deep spirituality. So today, and with the opening of this facility, she means there is a shift in the narrative that we're doing a deeply spiritual work. I found uh, in the report a description, uh, somewhat of a description of, their, of the participants of their dedication ceremony to be quite interesting. I'll read what is here from the report. Before the ceremony kicked off, religious leaders gathered upstairs for their own prayer circle. These are religious leaders participating in this quote-unquote sacred work of dedicating this Planned, Her Planned Parenthood facility. Religious leaders gathered upstairs for their own prayer circle led by Rabbi Michael Namath. The program director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism called upon their obligation to the world to, quote, make it whole, abortion, make it whole and holy. Then the formal event began featuring leaders from different Christian denominations, a rabbi, an abortion provider, other abortion providers, a Planned Parenthood patient, Hindu priests, an imam was featured over Skype. They had visual artists there and liturgical dancers. I've been a Christian longer than I've ever been an abortion provider, said Willie Parker, who is about as close as the reproductive choice movement gets to a rock star. He said, women have been made to think that this clinic is some evil place where God is not. He continued pointing out to the people, he said, cursing women for making sacred decisions, our answer to the curse is to bless. Referencing the pro-lifers who were staging across the street, hopefully they were not cursing. Planned Parenthood medical director Serena Floyd said she plans to tell patients that the abortion facility is a blessed space and that those of faith also support your decisions. I found it interesting then the article says the group ended by singing together this little light of mine. I don't think you can make this up. I think it has to be true. You can't make it up. And so how do we respond to this? How do we live? How do we act? Part of what we do is we remind ourselves of our biblical position. I think it is important to remind ourselves that we don't stand alone. There is a great pro-life movement around the world and in our own nation. It is disgraceful that our nation has pressured through funding of poor nations. Um, they have threatened the withholding of those funds until certain nations meet, mostly poor nations, impoverished nations, until they meet a certain quota or standard of abortion provision, they are not given their money for food and resources. Nations like Malawi are pressured by the nations like us, the United States, with the withholding of those funds. Shame on us, shame on our leaders, shame on us, as I've already referenced, for electing people who make decisions like that. It is very important for us to be deeply involved in prayer, asking God to turn the heart of our president, our vice president, that our legislature would appoint Supreme Court justices who would help turn this Roe v. Wade decision over. We have some promise that we have a potential for a pro-life court. I think we need to pray to that end.
Let's turn to our notes and let's continue to uh, just think through um, and clarify our thinking about abortion in a very confusing world. In some ways, I view this talk or sermon as a sanity check. Is it unreasonable to be pro-life? The answer has to be a resounding no when you look at the evidences. And in fact, I would like to go rather quickly through these points. There are going to be numerous quotes and, and readings. I hope you can bear with that and track along with me. It will probably help you to watch your notes as we go. And then, as I said, I want us to end with um, clearly understanding um, a, a biblical position on this this morning. So you might uh, say that these points are answering the question, why are we then against the abortion movement? Why are we pro-life and why are we against abortion? Sanity check, clarification of our position. Number one, we are against it because it is racially biased. In other words, even if we were atheists ourselves, there, are, there is great cause to be against it. These are not in any particular order or order of priority. They are just points that I felt that we needed to deal with this morning, and this is how they came out. Number one, we are against abortion, and we want to clarify our thinking on this because it is racially biased. Looking at the notes, the statistics on abortion in communities of color are tragic. For example, less than one in six Caucasian pregnancies end in abortion, while almost one in every two pregnancies in the African-American community end in abortion. By the way, let me comment and clarify that much of the material today I found in an extended online magazine uh, resource at Focus on the Family. I also used a couple other uh, websites uh, for my notes, and I tried to list some websites that would be of help to you, even embedded in the notes themselves. Back to our point number one on the racial bias. Further, about 13% of American women are black, yet they account for over 35% of all abortions. This is a shameful reality. It is also a shameful reality that, that it is a fact that abortion clinics intentionally market to minority mostly urban communities. It is a fact. They intentionally market in minority communities. In fact, since Roe v. Wade, and I checked this out, as of 7.45 last night, I clicked on the Abortion Clock website. There is a website called the Abortion Clock, and it's all it is, is a, a continual counting of the accumulation of tracking those babies that have been aborted since 1973 in a number of arenas worldwide in certain communities in the United States. One identifiable statistic is the number of abortions in the African-American community alone. As of 745 last night, before I had to go to print with my notes, the count was 17,921,096 African-American babies had been aborted. It was, it was incongruous to me then that the article I read you from the, uh, the New York Post, um, it showed a picture of the gathering of the clergy at this dedication event to their sacred work. And it was nearly 100% of the African-American community. That is shameful. 
But I tell you, it is shameful for the Caucasian white community to be silent about this. This is in no way some kind of marginalizing of the African American community or suggesting that somehow there's an inferiority or uh, some slant that the Caucasian community somehow rises above this. We don't. It is the reality of the racial bias of this disgrace. And it ought to be spoken to and addressed. Now, put it in perspective. 17.9 million babies. 17.9 million lives terminated before they breathe air outside of their mother's womb. Okay, so in New York City, the population right now is 8.4 million. 8.4 million. All right, let's do the math now. Let's add Los Angeles. There's 4 million in Los Angeles. 8.4 plus 4 million. We got New York. We got L.A. Where are we? Help me out. 12.4 million people. Okay, we need to come up with about 5 plus more million, don't we? So let's throw in Chicago. 2.7 million people. But we're still not there, are we? Let's add Houston at 2.2 million. And now we're getting in the 17 million range. Let's take New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, and somehow let's fill them completely with African-American demographic and then let's wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what that abortion rate looks like. It's, it's mind-boggling. Do you understand why I'm bothered about myself this morning? I realized it about halfway through the first sermon that I think I have issues that I can actually preach this sermon without weeping and breaking down. The flip side of the coin is I don't want to preach it angry either. Although there is a place for righteous indignation, isn't there? Somehow I want to preach it with the heart of Christ who regularly ministered to broken people, right? That our church would be a restorative place is my prayer. Secondly, I, you need to know that we cannot be part of the abortion movement because it is biologically dishonest. It is biologically dishonest. At three weeks, the heart begins to beat. Mama doesn't even know she's pregnant yet. At six weeks, tooth buds for baby teeth are shaping in the jaw. At eight weeks, the brain is now producing 250,000 neurons each minute. At nine weeks, all of the major organ systems are present Dr. Alfred uh, Giovanni, professor of pediatrics and, and OB at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, said this, I am no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say that the child prior to the dramatic effects of puberty, some people would probably say that, is not a human being. I have learned from my earliest medical education that human life begins at the time of conception. What's the point here? The point is that largely in state-driven education systems, we're teaching our children that we evolve from some kind of pond of scum and that we are, are just a higher advanced form of animal life. We teach them that an unborn baby is a gob of cells or a, a gob of protein of some kind. <clears throat> Nothing can be further from the truth, and it is absolutely biologically dishonest to say so. And that's just making the point. That point can be developed and explored that can be mind-boggling, the realities of what we know in the world of science and biology about unborn babies. Thirdly, it is, and, and somewhat related, it is, it is medically unethical. 
It is medically unethical to tell a mom that this is a gob of cells or just some um, non-life form development within her, whatever they say. You know, um, physicians make a pledge to care to the best of their ability to promote life. And so a mother comes to a doctor and, and there is a pregnancy. She has an unborn baby within her womb. And what does he do? Eventually, he will listen to the heartbeat of the baby, won't he? And many of you know the joy of being when they strap on the altar. And you smile and you just you look at that little picture that no one can discern. And oh, yeah, look, he looks just like, just like your granddad. <laughs> and the marvel of it all. You have to be educated you have to be educated to believe that that's not a human being. It is natural to understand that it is a human being. And it is medically unethical for doctors then to treat the unborn and to promote the life of the unborn and then in the same universe of the medical world to promote abortion. What about surgery of the unborn? What a marvelous area that is. It would be cool to click on and, and play some YouTube surgery uh, video. Uh, man, slitting through the womb and then they go in with their instruments and they can do heart surgery and they can do major organ surgery and they can make repairs. And it's just phenomenal. A hunk of protein? That is, that is completely unethical to describe a baby like that. Fourthly, I want you to see, well, before fourthly, I think it would be good to read the survivor of an abortion story. This is um, Melissa Odin. I have a picture of her. There she is today. Um, she writes uh, an aborted child's perspective in 1977, five days after a saline abortion, Melissa Odin was delivered and left on a table to die. She said, my mother had an abortion during her fifth month of pregnancy. Uh, this is to reinforce the, the unethical aspect of the medical world doing abortions. My mother had an abortion during her fifth month of pregnancy. The type of procedure was saline infusion abortion. It's, it's a little bit descriptive. And what that does is scald the child to death while they're still in the womb. Then they induce labor and a dead baby should be born. I was believed to be dead and I was actually left for dead. I was placed along, along the bedside table. As the nurse was tending to my mother, she realized that I was making small movements and I was making grunting noises. So they realized that, that here I had been aborted, that though I had been aborted, I had survived. The doctors remarked that I looked like I was about 31 weeks gestational age. They told my adoptive family, she's probably not going to live very long, and if she does, she's, not, she's going to be blind or deaf or have some sort of emotional or mental disability. Today, Melissa has a master's degree in social work and has worked in the fields of substance abuse, mental health, domestic violence, and sexual assault counseling, and child welfare. She is healthy, married, is a, she is healthy, married, is a mother to a young daughter of her own, and she shares her story around the world, providing a voice for the voiceless. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Number four, it is emotionally devastating. And again, a testimony. Uh, this time after an abortion, not a woman who survived an abortion, but a woman who had an abortion. It is possible that there are those in our audience today who can relate very much to this point. After abortion, a woman's perspective by Michaeline Friedenberg. 
She said, when I became pregnant at 18, I chose to have an abortion. I thought the abortion would erase the pregnancy. I thought I could move on with my life. I was wrong. Although I didn't feel this way before the procedure, it was now clear to me that the abortion ended the life of my child. I felt guilt and I desired punishment. I soon found myself in a cycle of self-destructive behavior that included an eating disorder. This downward spiral continued until suicidal thoughts began to scare me. That's when I finally attended an after-abortion healing retreat offered by a local pregnancy center. Realizing that I wasn't the only one having difficulty after an abortion helped tremendously. With the help of counselors and supportive friends, my time of self-condemnation and self-punishment slowly came to an end. This allowed me not only to grieve the loss of my child, but also to identify and work on my unhealthy behaviors. It took me several more years to finish my journey to wholeness, but things progressively improved as I learned to act on the truth of God's mercy and redemptive grace. Can I remind us here as well that all of us, whether we've had an abortion or not, all of us equally need God's mercy and redemptive grace. Fifth, I want you to know that it is logically inconsistent. I refuse to support something that is so absolutely logically inconsistent. I found an interesting blog. I don't know the gentleman's name, and I'm using it without permission. Um, it is in, it's a blog entitled, One Christian Dad. In his blog, he quotes a segment out of a sermon by John MacArthur when he was dealing with the pro-life issue. So he's going to reference this. I want to read you almost his entire blog. And this is to illustrate the point of the extreme illogic of the pro-death movement or the pro-abortion movement. And it has to do with this, this irrational misunderstanding of the differences of life and somehow making animal life more sacred than human life. Listen, we're not going to develop this point. We have many times in the past developed the point that the distinctive difference in human life is that we are created in the image of God and that animal life is not created in the image of God. That's why we're allowed to eat cows, grind them up into hamburger. <laughs> But we don't eat our neighbor and grind him up into hammer. <laughs> so the sanctity of human life. But somehow the world outside of a wisdom that comes from the fear of God has this so distorted that they cannot even think logically about this anymore. Let me read now. The blog, One Christian Dad. Did you know that it's illegal to transport a pregnant lobster? I learned this from John MacArthur. Now he quotes John MacArthur out of his sermon, and it's about more than the lobster. John MacArthur said that this guy saw that piqued his interest. Bags of babies are found in trash containers, as we all have heard. Yet on the other side of this, a wounded American eagle was found recently in Maryland and rushed to emergency treatment. However, it died, and a $5,000 reward was offered for the arrest of whoever injured it. It is illegal to ship a pregnant lobster. It's a $1,000 fine. In the state of Massachusetts, there's also an anti-cruelty law that makes it illegal to use goldfish as awards or prizes. Why? This is what it says. To protect the tendency to dull humanitarian feelings and to corrupt morals of those who abuse them. That's why we don't give away goldfish for prizes. The same people, MacArthur goes on to say, that want to save the goldfish are leading the parade, usually to kill the babies. Now back to one Christian dad's blog. 
He says, so I had to look it up to see if it was true. Yep, it is. Here is a statute from the Government of Maine website. Quote, it is against the law to take, transport, sell, or possess any lobster that is bearing eggs carried under the tail. Penalty for possessing an egg-bearing lobster is $1,000 for each violation. In addition, a fine of $200 for each lobster involved up to and including the first five lobsters. In excess of five lobsters, a fine of $400 for each lobster. Or, if the number of lobsters cannot be determined, a fine of not less than $2,500 or more than $10,000. Title 12, Section 6438A, Subsection 2, State of Massachusetts. One Christian dad goes on. It is illegal because the babies and the eggs could die. Be warned if you plan on lobster fishing. He abruptly then shifts focus. Earlier this week, a woman was exonerated. That's a fancy word for convictions being overturned and being declared innocent for killing her six-day-old newborn. Context time. She was drunk, pregnant, and driving. She crashed her car and the baby was born and died six days later. She was originally convicted of manslaughter. However, she appealed that her child was not a person at the time of the crash and she won. She was also acquitted of killing the two people in the other vehicle, but that is not important right now in this lobster tale. No, the baby was not deemed a person or the baby was deemed not a person. Too bad the baby wasn't deemed a lobster. Then perhaps there would be some justice. Oh, hey, Christian dad says, it gets crazier. Did you know it's illegal to perform an abortion on a lobster? Quote, it's illegal to remove the eggs from a buried female, one that's bearing eggs. The penalty for removing eggs from a female lobster is $1,000 each for each violation and in addition a fine of $300 for each lobster involved or if a number cannot be determined a fine of not less than $1,000 or more than $5,000 again from the Massachusetts Code. Be warned, he says, if you remove even one egg it's a $1,000 fine because it's deemed a lobster, right? But feel free to get an abortion because the baby is not deemed a person yet. Feel free to drink and drive if you're pregnant, right? If your baby dies, it's okay. It's not a person. Oh, and don't worry. Pregnant lobsters don't drink and drive. It's a good thing, too, because it would be a terrible tragedy if all those lobster eggs died in an accident. May God have mercy on us, he closes. Obviously being very cynical. Simply illustrating the illogic of this point. There is also a line of logic that will not take time to develop, but it has to do with the idea of viability. That is, that because a baby cannot live on its own, that it doesn't have the same amount of value as a, a child that can live on its own. Um, Pastor uh, Kevin DeYoung, who I appreciate very much and does significant writing and blogging himself, uh, a pastor in Michigan, let me just read what he wrote and you'll understand the point here. Illustrating the illogic of the abortion or pro-death movement. Kevin DeYoung writes, Shall we reserve human dignity only for those humans who are not dependent on others? Do we observe, excuse me, do we deserve to live only when we can live on our own? Is the four-month-old fetus less than human because she needs her mom for life? Is the four-month-old infant less than human when she still needs her mom for life? What if you depend on dialysis or insulin or a breathing apparatus? 
Is value a product of fully functioning vitality? Is independence a prerequisite for human identity? Are we worth only what we can think, accomplish, and do on our own, he asks? Profound. Finally, remember baby Jessica? Do you remember baby Jessica? This is a 30-year-old story. Uh, I, I happened to see it on, in passing somewhere, her name, and I clicked on and, and refreshed myself. I'll not take time to read her entire story. Uh, this happened down in Texas. Um, she, grew, she was in Midland, Texas. She was at her aunt's house. They were playing in the backyard. Her aunt went in the, in the house to answer the phone, and baby Jessica, at 18 months, fell down an open wellhead. She was about 22 feet down in the ground jammed there. She was there for 58 hours before they got her out. Here's my point, the illogic. What did the community do? Now, to be consistent with the abortion movement, wouldn't you say, ah, cap the well. Nobody thought that. The entire community comes rushing in. They took a 26-inch bore, bore down to parallel, got over to her. Uh, the men, the rescue men worked tirelessly, would have given their lives for that child. This was a, one of the marquee moments for CNN, by the way, that, that started this whole thing of 24-hour news cycles, uh, where the whole world began to watch. And Jessica became America's baby, if you can recall. A am I missing something? That somehow being younger than nine months makes you less valuable than being 18 months? You see, that is the consistent logic then that makes being 61 less, more valuable than being 81. Do you know that, right? And so we have this incredible illogic that we live with. Sixthly, it's socially shameful. I must move along. Notice the information there. The Dred Scott versus Sanford made it illegal for states to outlaw slavery. Black slaves were counted as three-fifths per persons for the purpose of apportionment in Congress. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Let me just jump right to a John Piper article on this point, And let me read John Piper's words instead of trying to explain it. John Piper is a retired pastor and author in Minnesota. Um, he's worth listening to. Piper wrote, On March 6th, 1857, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott versus Sanford ruled that no act of Congress or territorial legislature could make laws banning slavery. In other words, the Supreme Court said it is now illegal for states to outlaw abortion. You can't do it. You're not allowed to do it. It still stands. No, no, excuse me. That, I misspoke. The, the decision of Dred Scott versus Sanford that he's talking about in 1857 said that it is illegal for states to outlaw slavery. States were not allowed to outlaw slavery or to make slavery illegal. They could not make laws banning slavery. Forgive me for confusing that. The fundamental argument was that slaves are not free and equal persons, but the property of their masters. The ruling is analogous to Roe versus Wade because today no state may make law banning abortion to protect the unborn. The argument is similar, basically because the unborn are the sovereign disposal of their mothers and do not have personal standing in their own right. There was no consensus in this country on the personhood and rights of slaves. 
We were split down the middle, but the issue was so fundamental that the states went to war, and in the end, the Lincoln administration overturned the Dred Scott decision, and today, 130 years later, we look back with amazing consensus and marvel at the blindness of our forefathers. May future generations someday look back on the blindness of this generation because Roe v. Wade will be reversed and we will be understanding the personhoods, personhood of the unborn. Seventhly, it is scientifically unsustainable. And what I mean by this is, is that as technology advances, it is my personal belief that science alone will turn the corner on this argument. I think that it's getting closer and closer all the time. Uh, namely, uh, ultrasound is a huge factor. Let me just quickly read the, the testimony of Dr. Bernard Nathanson. Dr. Nathanson died in 2011, and, um, but he wrote this. He said, I am personally responsible for over 75,000 abortions. He was one of the main architects, Dr. Nathanson, was one of the main architects of the strategic plan to dehumanize the unborn child and legitimize abortion across the country. He succeeded beyond all his expectations. Then something happened that forced him to see abortion for what it is and to renounce all that he had done and advocated. Ultrasound technology arrived in his office in the mid-70s. Ultrasound technology provided a true window to the womb and revealed the humanity of the unborn child. Dr. Nathanson wrote again, From then on, we could see this person in the womb from the very beginning and study and measure it and weigh it and take care of it and treat it and diagnose it and do all kinds of things. It became, in essence, a second patient. Now a patient is a person. So basically, I was dealing then with two people instead of just one carrying some lump of meat around. That's what started me doubting the ethical acceptability of abortion on request. Close quote. Dr. Nathanson's acknowledgement of the humanity of the unborn child had no conscious religious tone to it. He was an atheistic Jew. He said, quote, I had not a seedling of faith to nourish me. He wrote, embryology itself, confirmed by the ultrasound, led him to acknowledge that there was no significant difference between the humanity of the mother and that of her unborn child that would justify killing the baby. Indeed, we're dealing with a complete separate entity. There's no matching cellular structure, a complete different DNA and genetic code, completely different in identity. I trust that science will be true enough and honest enough to shut down abortion. But more important than anything is our understanding of what does the Bible say, and we have just a few minutes left, but I think you can listen closely and get the point. Let's go to the Old Testament and turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. So we're building a logic, and uh, what we've reviewed to review, we've, we are arguing that we cannot go along with the abortion movement specifically because it is racially biased, biologically dishonest, medically unethical, emotionally devastating to the victims. It is logically inconsistent, socially shameful, and scientifically we hope it will be unsustainable. Most important, I want you to know that our Bibles refute abortion. There is no space in Christianity for terminating life. In Exodus chapter 21, it's a really fascinating passage. It is dealing with relationships between different sets of people. 
like slaves and masters and things like that. It's interesting that chapter 21 of Exodus comes right after chapter 20, one of the more profound things you've heard this morning. In Exodus chapter 20, you have the the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, we have that simple phrase, Thou shalt not kill, or you shall not murder, the ESV translates it. We could develop that point alone, but... Coming out of the giving of the Decalogue was a defining down of numerous relationship rules. How was Israel of old supposed to live in light of the law that God gave? It demanded social response. Let's jump right into the passage in verse 22 of Exodus 21. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Notice that it calls what came out a child. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. Okay, you got the picture? Moses is giving directives from God on certain relationship issues. And he's speaking specifically to the point of a pregnant woman who gets next to some brawling men. They evidently hit her, knock her down the stairs or whatever. And as a result of that, she is induced into labor and she has the baby prematurely. They might be bruised up, but they live. And in the end, all is well. As a result, the husband is able to levy a fine. It's to be reinforced by the judge and make sure it's carried out. But they don't stop there. They go on to verse 23, and here it is. But if there is harm, all right, if there's mischief, if, if something happens to wound the baby, here's what we understand. Then you shall pay. Look at this. Here's the, here's the touch point. Then you shall pay life for life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, stripe for a stripe. My whole point here is easily taken, and it is that the Bible presents an assumed equality. The Bible always presents an assumed equality of the unborn with the adults. We see this in other places where unborn babies, like John the Baptist, Leapt within the womb. It was a separate entity. The mother referenced it as a person. An assumed equality. We also recognize in the Bible that the killing of children, and this is not quite apples for apples with abortion, but it is in the same ballpark, I think, is that that God defines the murder of children as a brutal atrocity. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Isaiah, Jeremiah in our Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 7, and let's make this point. If you're taking notes, you might want to back up as far as verse 23 of Jeremiah chapter 7 and read down through there. Uh, You get the idea there clearly that God gave them a command to follow his voice, to be obedient to his will, and that they would be blessed as a result. He goes on, though, to clarify that he acknowledges that they have gone far from God. And they have disregarded his voice and they are not living in obedience. And in fact, they have assimilated into their system the pagan religions of their Canaanite neighbors. Last week on the marriage issue in Matthew 19, we were talking about how Israel of old intermarried with the Canaanites and it it was devastating to them. Here we have this, what God calls an evil in my sight. Look at verse 30. 
In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30, he said, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. That is, idols or implements of false pagan worship. They brought them into his very temple, and he calls them detestable things. They brought them right into my house, and they defile my name. And they've gone up on the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come to my mind. I didn't make this up. I never even had a thought, God says. Speaking anthropomorphically, like we are, like we would think. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topeth or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. I'm going to rename it the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth, because there will be no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And you won't even be able to frighten the, the animals away, the vultures away. They'll be feasting on the dead, the dead bodies. The Specific prophecy has to do with when Nebuchadnezzar swoops down from Babylon and wipes out Jerusalem. It's not exactly parallel, but here's what's happening. God's people who had children were willing to kill their children because it was part of the motif of the day in the religious circle. They had been pressed into the world's mode. They had gone up on the high places around the valley of Hinnom and they had built worship centers. Part of that was the God of Molech, was just one of many, represented by these grotesque statues who had large hands built out of bronze or brass. They would light big bonfires under the hands and then as part of their worship and sacrifice, they would bring their infant children and sizzle them to death in the burning bronze hands of this false god of Molech. And they thought it was okay to do that. Somehow in their mind, they rationalized that, that this was okay and that they would be better off if they did this. Otherwise, why would they do it? Expediency and personal gain would cause people to do all kinds of crazy things. But on a more positive note, that is, the point there is that that is a brutal atrocity in the eyes of God. Let's end in just a few minutes now. Let's conclude in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. It'll just take you a minute to get this. Perhaps I should conclude my sermon by apologizing and saying, I'm, I'm sorry that I spent so little time in the Word of God. You know that that's not characteristic of this pulpit I felt it would be valuable for our young people particularly to see that there is, this, there is a logic, there is a rationale for being pro-life. And you could develop those points, young people, in a defense of your positions if you're ever called to do so. There's much material under all of those. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16 is a psalm of David. And he says, beginning with verse 13, For you formed my inward parts... You, speaking of God, you knitted me together, the ESV says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That is a euphemism for the act of the husband and wife coming together. The sperm and the egg connecting, the implantation on the uterine wall, the attachment. You wove me together in my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Oh Lord, how precious are your thoughts. This is a song of sanctity. A song of sanctity. Sanctity means sacred, that which is sacred. And this was a song that David wrote to be sung to music. And his song is about his own conception and about how marvelously created he is. And let me just click off what he's talking about. Wouldn't you agree, if we were to look at this very seriously, and just even at the cursory reading that we just did, superficial reading of it, that clearly David defines himself as being beautifully handcrafted by God. Beautifully handcrafted by God. You wove me together in my mother's womb. You, you marvelously put me together. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What a work of the hand of God is an unborn baby. Secondly, in verse 13, even the language or the grammar of the passage, don't you see the distinctive nature of the difference between himself, even as he is in moments of conception and in the womb of his mother, he is individually distinct from the mother. He is a person. He emphasizes his own personhood there. You saw me. I wasn't an appendage to my mother. You saw me ensconced in the womb. But you see the personhood, the individuality of it, distinct from the mother. Thirdly, clearly, David is emphasizing that God knew all about him. He was personally known by God. You saw me, you knew me, you knew all about me. Your eyes, another anthropomorphism, giving a human description to God. God doesn't really have eyes. Jesus does, but God doesn't. He, that's another subject. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, personally known by God. Over 50 million American babies have been aborted since 1973. Over 50 million. Every one of them were handcrafted by God in the womb. Every one of them were known by God. Every one of them were distinct from their mother who abused their privilege for any number of reasons. Finally, it is remarkable, I think, to note that David, at this point of conception, recognizes that he is uniquely programmed by God. I love this verse. We often use this at funerals, by the way. It's precious at birth. Look what he says. In your book, okay, God doesn't really have a book. It's another description in, in God's program. But in God's book, it's as though he has a book. And God wrote in his book... Before any of the days came to be, God wrote in the book what my life was going to entail. 
God has a plan for my life. Wow. Uniquely programmed, using computer terminology, uniquely programmed in advance, and then before the plan can be unfolded, taken away. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. But thankfully, you do know that abortion is forgivable, don't you? Don't you know that abortion is forgivable? Uh, we are completely out of time, but will you relate with me in your thinking for some closing remarks? Because you'll be able to track with me. I wanted us to go to Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, we have the story of the prodigal son. You know that story, right? I wanted to equate this story with the final hymn that we sang earlier, His Robes for Mine. And in Luke chapter 15, you got that punk kid who comes to his father. He thinks he knows it all. He wishes his father dead. He demands his inheritance. His father gives it to him. And off he goes to a faraway city. And he's, he spoils and wastes it all with riotous living. And in brokenness one day, eating out of a pig trough, he realizes that he was so wrong. And he wonders if his father would have him back to be a servant on his ranch. And so he decides to head back home. And on his way home, the father sees him coming down the lane. And tell me, tell me, where is the father? Where is the father? Is he up on the porch waiting? Where's the father? He's running. He's running to the punk kid. To put an elbow up at his ear? No. And you read the story and you know what he does? He basically says, son, get rid of those old rags of clothes. And he calls for a new set of clothes, new robes. Bring him and dress him in new robes and kill the fatted calf. So this dead son of mine is now alive. The father forgave the repentant son. The son had a hard time organizing it in his brain. He continues with the planned speech. He tries to get out as the father's telling him what's going on. He tries to say, may I at least serve on your staff? And the father doesn't even have ears to hear that. His robes for mine. The father's got a set of robes that he'll give you. He's got robes of righteousness. There's no condemnation now. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5 talks about how even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did that to give us a new life, forgiveness. So you run to the cross. And all people everywhere must run to the cross. You see, it's not a matter of have you had an abortion or are you guilty of murder. It's that you are a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. So that we just, we all are equally sinful. We all just haven't done the same deeds. It hasn't manifested itself out in all the same ways, but we are all equally guilty before the judge. But the judge isn't there to condemn. The judge is there to give you a new set of clothes. And it's not, it's not an orange jumpsuit. So look, come to the cross, lay down your burden, and be forgiven by your heavenly Father. 
And let the robes of the righteousness of Christ enfold you and give up the rags of the garbage of the past of which you can do nothing about at this point. You can only move forward. And that's the grace of God. And his will and his plan for your life always start brand new right now. Praise God. Will you stand and close in prayer with me? you need to cry out to God in your heart right now and do that. Admit your sinfulness. Ask God to forgive you and give you that new robe of righteousness. His robes for mine. What an exchange. Father, you know the hearts and minds represented in the room today. Father, would you turn the conscious consciousness of our nation to become sensitive? Would you raise up righteous judges who will be very convincing in their arguments and allow states to outlaw abortion and start saving lives? Father, would you help us to know how to help out and, and to know what to do? And would you, would you just turn these inequities, Lord, these horrible disgraces of racism and, and, and biological and medical lies. Shut it down, we pray. But most of all, would you heal hearts today and in, in, in our weaknesses and in our disgraces, would you help us to make our way to the foot of the cross to find newness of life and forgiveness of sin once and for all. Make the great exchange of our filthy rags for the righteousness of Christ. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your patience. I pray that um, you would show us how to live as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.